Well, as you probably have guessed, Proverbs chapter 28. Last time we were in Proverbs chapter 28 was the week before last. Of course, we had John's uh, funeral service here last week. Uh, we studied one of the great, greatest verses in the Bible uh, on us as Christians not really knowing uh, how to pray and having the right prayer life. You know, our inability to understand prayer as, as God sees it and as it is so clearly uh, laid out uh, in the Bible. You know, our verse in chapter 28, verse 9, that we really focused on was that he that turneth his ear from the commandments, his prayer shall become an abomination. You know, and that's hard, as I said last week, that's really hard for a lot of God's people today to grasp. Um, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we get farther into the sermon, but it, it never ceases to amaze me today uh, how complicated uh, man has made Christianity. It just seems like everything that God intended is to be so simple. A man has to get his hands on it and make it so complicated. And it's an incredible, it's an incredible thing that you see. And I guess it goes with the times of the Laodicean church period, you know, where everything just has to be, you know, a mechanical. Everything has to be in a corporate mindset. And many churches, you know, when you have large mega churches, they they likened a pastor to a CEO uh, in, in a corporation. And, and, and I understand that because, truthfully, most big churches have just become corporations. Uh, it's all about nickels and dimes. It's all about, uh, you know, the, the bar graph, you know, of where you're at and, and, and all the things that happen. And, and I totally understand it. It's totally unbiblical. But at least I understand, you know, where it's at. And I showed you, you know, our lack of understanding when it comes to prayer, you know, and prayer, not knowing how to pray, pray is one of the three infirmities that we talked about last week that's listed uh, in the Bible that we struggle with as Christians. You know, and obviously the first one you remember was our flesh, and nobody has to even argue that one. We all struggle with that. The second one was the fact that nobody has to argue with this one, that we always forget what God has done for us. But the third one is most people just never get. And that's based on Romans chapter 8, verse 26, that we don't know how to pray. You could go online and you could find books on prayer by guys put out across this country. Uh, I mean, you could buy seminars, you could buy books, you could buy tapes, you could buy all of that stuff. And 99.99% of it is stuff that has nothing to do with the Word of God and what really prayer is all about. It's all got, like everything else in Christianity, it's got commercialized and everybody wants to make a buck off of it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's just not the way that it, it goes in the Bible. I showed you the great study, ta- study of the tabernacle about its furnishings, the seven pieces of furniture that's found in that tabernacle, and how that when we take that and apply it to what we do in our lives, uh, as our body is the temple of God, you know, you see that these seven pieces of furniture there all represent something in our life. The brazen altar, the, you know, the laver of water, the shoe bread, the golden candlesticks, and certainly the holy of holies. But we focused on last time about the altar of incense and the laver of incense. And I showed you how that each piece of this is a picture of something. But when it comes down to the incense, that's a picture of our prayer. And we talked about the concept of strange fire that how that the prayer, uh, the, the, the lighting of the incense had to come off the brazen altar, a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. And how that if our prayer life uh, starts anywhere other than the cross in your own life or what Christ did for you, it has to be the driving force behind everything in our lives. 
We make every decision in life, or we should, every decision we make, we make based on what he did for us and how that will impact what God wants us to do. And we're, we're, we're far from that as we, as we are in this terrible period of time called a Laodicean church. And how that the greatest example, I didn't get into this last week, but the greatest example of, of our prayer becoming an abomination will be simply a study of the life of Judas. And it's he, of course, we all know this, who betrayed the Lord in Matthew chapter 26. And then a little later on in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, you know, the Bible says that he repented to himself. And then he goes out and hangs himself. And it becomes one of the seven suicides in the Bible that if you really want to understand the concept of that, then you, again, study those seven. You don't have to buy anybody's book on it. You don't have to go out and get somebody's seminar. You don't have to listen to somebody who's an expert. Go to the Bible because the Bible is an expert on everything for you and me, and that's where you start. You know, the modern-day Baptist and the neo-evangelical crowd, uh, uh, they do the same thing that Judas does. Uh, they betray uh, the Lord. Uh, I guess that's why that they work so hard at trying to prove that Judas was really a good guy and a safe guy. I mean, even now talk about there was a gospel according to Judas. And a lot of these guys are going around talking about how Judas got a raw deal. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, that's not the way that it worked. The modern-day Baptists are just like the old the New Testament Judas, and they do the same thing. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches us. And again, how simple is this? This is not complicated. This is not rocket science. It's, it's so basic. How, if you can just read the Bible, John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, every one of those is a one-syllable word. How much easier does it get? And then John chapter 1, verse 14, same chapter, same book. Just 13 verses later, it says that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you can't separate, and I mean, how hard is it to see that? You cannot separate the Word of God from God Himself, and that Christ is the incarnate Word of God, uh, you know, through the Word of God. You know, First John chapter 3, verse 7 talks about that there's three that bear record in heaven, and the first one is the Father, God the Father, the second one is the Word, and the third one is the Holy, Holy Ghost. And the reason why he set up in heaven the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost and didn't say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is he's showing you that Jesus Christ and the Word are one and the same. I mean, I just don't know how hard that is for somebody to grasp. In the early New Testament church, God's body was here in Jesus Christ. We know that. God was manifested in the flesh. I get it. When he went back to heaven, we, the church then, became his body. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. We replace the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he said over in John chapter 14, verses 12, 13, and 14, he says, greater things will ye do than, he, than I did, Jesus speaking. And that is so true because he was only here for, for 33 years and really three and a half years he was in the ministry of his public ministry and you and I live much longer than that. He never moved outside the 40, 30, 40 miles of Jerusalem that he lived. We go much farther than that. And, of course, we see that we are his replacement. The body of Christ, the church, is his body. But then we needed 
his mind, and that's where the Word of God comes in in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16, that we now are, we, we have the mind of Christ. So the church is the body of Christ, the Bible is the mind of Christ, and that makes us complete to fulfill the mission that he started, that he asked us to, to, uh, to fulfill. And I, I don't know what's hard about that. I mean, I, I get you. I, get, I guarantee you there's kids in our junior high and our younger, older kids that would grasp that just like that. I guarantee you kids like my granddaughter Macy understand that. I, I guarantee you some of your kids that understand that. I mean, I get it. Olivia would understand that. You older kids or younger kids would grasp that. I mean, I mean, what is so hard about that? It's the fact that it's a great truth that the devil doesn't want anybody to have. When you reject the word of God, then like Judas, you have rejected Christ himself. Now, I know that sounds terrible. And I guarantee you, people are going to listen to this. And say, well, hold on, he didn't think he is. I'm just a guy with a Bible, I believe. Who are you? And I'm telling you, it's so simple and so basic, but you like to hide behind the complexity. That's what the men do today. When you reject the word of God, you have, like Judas, have rejected Christ himself, for he is the word, and the Bible says in Psalms chapter 40, verse 7, again, who has come in the volume of a book. Now, the question this morning is, do you have that book? That's all it is. And now, like Judas, your prayer now becomes sin, an abomination. Now, if you don't believe me, turn over to Psalms 109. And I'm going to read you a great passage that went in with last week. And the reason why I don't always finish things up last week is because I like to blend them all together and keep it flowing. So I'll go back and save a few things and then move it into this week's. Some guy says, well, that's not my style of teaching or preaching. That's why you're not a very good preacher. I don't know what to tell you. Psalms 109, verse 1. Hold not thy peace, O God, of my praise, for in the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. Now, if you can't figure this out, this is Christ speaking prophetically here. And he's getting ready to talk about Judas who betrayed him, just so you know where we're going here. So he says, for the mouth of the wicked, that would be the scribes, the Pharisees, and all that crowd, uh, and the deceitful open against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Thou, set thou a wicked man over him and let Satan stand at his right hand. And when he is judged, let him be condemned. And here it comes, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg, and let them seek their bread out of their desolate places. Now, this is Judas. Here's your guy. This is a prophecy about them hating Christ, and then Judas betraying him, and once we understand that Jesus Christ is the Word, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and it's settled in heaven, and there's three that agree in heaven, then we know what we've got here. Verse 2 is talking about somebody lying uh, with a deceitful tongue. We know that to be, as I said, the scribes, the Pharisees, and, and all of that crowd. And uh, those will be the Bible scholars of his day. 
that'll be the, as I said, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Verse 3 says that these people compassed me about with words of hatred. They're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ with words of hatred, and they're lying about him. Now, let me just stop here. I mean, come on, let's just get real today for a moment. If he's the word of God, and these guys in the first coming of Christ are talking about the embodiment of Christ in a body, lying in hateful words to him, and that body is the word of God today, and you got some Bible scholar doing the exact same thing, please show me the difference. I'm open to it. Please do. Bring your credentials in and let me and impress me with them. Show me what you got. Verse 4 says that they are his adversaries. Now, I want to tell you something. These adversaries were the leaders of his religion of the day. They ain't Jehovah Witnesses. They ain't morons. They ain't Church of Christ. They're leaders within the established religion that Christ came to be the Messiah of. And the very men who are the Bible scholars of the religion of his day have turned against him just like the religious scholars and leaders today have turned against the volume of a book that is the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no difference. Only in your depraved mind can you make a difference. When you get down to the clear Bible and just lay it out, and this is why they don't care much for the Bible, Verse 6 says that he's a wicked man. That would be Judas in the historical context. <clears throat> it would be any scribe, Pharisee today, or Bible scholar who takes a stand and betrays the Lord Jesus Christ through the Word of God. Satan had his right hand. Now, we know that Satan's involved in all of this. Verse 7 says, when he is judged, let, his, let him be condemned. And here it is, his prayer <clears throat> becomes sin. And verse 8 says, let another take his office, uh, that would be Judas dying and Matthias in Acts chapter 1, verses 20 through 26, taking his office. Now, there it is, an incredible yet terrible truth that most of God's people have betrayed the very book that God uh, clearly told us is his son. And I'm going to say it again. You cannot separate Jesus Christ from the Word of God. You cannot separate God from the Word of God because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Notice it did not say that its original manuscripts were manifested or the teachings. It says the Word. Bible tells us that God was manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. And the Bible tells us that God then uh, was manifested in a book. Isaiah 40, verse 7, John chapter 1, verse 14, Philippians 2, 5, 1 Corinthians 2, 16. And now you only have, uh, who would argue? In fact, Peter says this, or uh, Paul says this. He says, if, another man, if a man comes to you and preaches another Jesus, nobody in any church would stand for a man getting up and discounting the Jesus of the Bible and giving you another Jesus. I don't believe there would be a Baptist church or even a neo-evangelical don't go that far. I think if a man got up and he says, folks, you can throw out the Jesus of the Bible. I'm going to tell you about a new Jesus. Who would accept that? But you allow the guy to get up and throw out the book that is Jesus Christ and give you another one. And you're okay with that. See, I'm a simple guy. I follow 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, that the Bible says that the devil wants to destroy the church from the simplicity that's in Christ. 
Now, he ain't going to get that from me because I'm, I'm not going to allow that to happen. I simply believe you only got one Christ, and I simply believe you only got one Bible, and they're the same. And it's settled in heaven, the Bible says in Psalms 119, verse 89. And like Judas, when a man takes the position that he kicks out Christ like Judas did and betrays him, or a man today betrays the book like they do today, this is the basis of our Proverbs 28, 9, that, you know, his prayer becomes an abomination. And then he goes on and he says, and your children are now fatherless, verse 9. That means they have no God. That means they have no guide. That means they have no direction. That means when you reject the book, unless God intervenes in something, then your children are going to be worse off than you are. It means that every generation is going to get farther from the truth. And boy, do we see that happening today with men who were once held up as great men with the Bible. And then he says, and your wicked generation, verse 9, will seek their bread, the word of God, out of desolate places, verse 10. You bet they will. And, of course, we know that bread in John chapter 6, verse 35 is a type of the Word of God. So now we're seeing that this crowd has to seek bread out of desolate places. That'll be your NIV, ASV, RSV, and then New King James Bible. All the new garbage that's out there that rejects the truth of, clear truth of God. And all of the rest of the, of the, of the people that hang out in that crowd. I, in yesterday in people ministry, I, I told them that I read an article this week it was put out by one of the uh, uh, seminaries in, a, in, a, in this country. I forget which one it was. And uh, they, listed, they listed a poll, and they listed the 10. I, I said yesterday it was 10. It was 12. They listed the 12 top pastors in America. And they give a little bio on each one of them. And uh, it was the, 10, the 12 top pastors in America today. And as you read down that list, you could know very clearly out of the 12, there wasn't a one of them that believed that you had the absolute perfect word of God that you could trust and believe in. Not a one of them. There was a couple of them in there that were women. And there's a couple of them in there that if they actually believe what their church teaches, they're not even saved. But that's where America's at today. We have put the preeminence on men who will take the word of God from you. We'll put the preeminence on men that'll, that'll inf- have to tell you, you got to come to a Bible college or you got to come to our seminary before you can really have a relationship with God. And we will teach you and take from you the simplicity of Christ and build into you the complexity of Christ. You'll go there and you'll learn about your hermeneutics. You'll learn about sodiontology. You'll learn about uh, uh, anthropology. You'll learn all of these big $50 words that nobody in the Bible ever spoke like. And they want you to believe that that's what Christianity really is when the Bible clearly tells you in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that that is satanic, that the devil wants to destroy and take from us the simplicity that is in Christ. And of course, that's where, that, that's where we're at today. And I, I, I can't stress that point enough. Now, moving into today, we're going to look at Proverbs 28, verses 12 and 14, 12, 13, 14, and we're going to move right along with this same concept. All this is kind of going together. Now, let me read it for you here, and then we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll kind of get into it here. It says, uh, when righteous men do rejoice, there is great glory, but when the wicked rise, a man is hidden. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. 
Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardened his heart shall fall into mischief. Now, uh, there's some really good truths here that we want to look at, and I'm going to save verse 14 for next week, but we're going to look at 12 and 13 today. That'll be enough to keep us busy. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's go to the, the Lord. Tony, back there, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the preaching today? Now, let's start with verse 12 here, and it's, it's pretty straightforward. It says, when, when, when righteous men do rejoice, there is great glory. <clears throat> now, that is because, and that simply means that when a man saved begins to rejoice in something that God has done, he'll give the honor and glory to God and not themselves. So, because the man is righteous and he rejoices, there's great glory, not for the man, but giving the glory back to the Lord. Now, the great example of this, and there's a number of them in the Bible, would be, would be Solomon at the dedication of the temple. This will be back in 1 Kings chapter 8. And uh, you'll find that now he's king over the vast nation of Israel. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's quite an impressive thing. And when he, when he dedicates that temple, you have in there what is called Solomon's prayer of the dedication of the temple. Simply one of the greatest prayers anywhere in the Bible and certainly a model for anybody in public office, but certainly a model for us. And he totally gives God the credit for everything that he does. He doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for honor and glory. He asks for wisdom to deal with God's people. And boy, that was the right prayer. And God not only gave him the wisdom, but he also gave him the riches and the glory and the honor that came along with it. But Solomon, at least in his early days, he gave all that back to God. One of the greatest prayers in all the Bible and a great model for us. I, I would ask you to take that as a leader of the nation of Israel and just compare. I'll just say the last 10, but you could probably do all of them. Just take the last 10 presidents of the United States and see if they followed that same approach. See if they followed giving the honor and glory back to God or they take it to themselves. When the job, when the unemployment is down as it is now to the point where it hasn't been this way in 50 years ago, nobody gives God the honor and glory for it. Just look what I did to make this happen. When something happens over here that's a great, but politicians take credit for it themselves so it can help them get reelected. They never stop and think for a moment of time to give the honor and glory back to God. Because I want to tell you something. God could sink this nation in 15 seconds. You ain't seen a tsunami till you see the one God can cook up from the East Coast or the West Coast if he wanted to. And it's a great model for us. You know, and I know some of you, if not many of you, understand this. The older you get as you walk with God and you're doing what God wants you to do, the less important you know that you really are you realize how God doesn't need you as much as we thought he did early on in our lives. It's more that we need him. Uh, the more you know how dependent you really are on God for everything and how absolutely worthless we really are, that God can replace any of us in about a millisecond. You know, John 3.30 is a great verse. In fact, when somebody asks me to sign their Bible, I always put this verse in here. It says, he must increase, but I must decrease. That needs to be the plan for every child of God that ever got saved. The older you get, the more God does, but the more you understand, the more you realize that it isn't because of anything you do. 
And, you know, another great example of this would be David. And I know David had his issues. David had his problem, but so do we. But never did he forget what God did. I can find places in there when David is completely out of fellowship with God, <coughs> but he's faced with something <coughs> that he has to make a decision. And even when he's out of fellowship with God, he's going back to the Word of God on the basis to tell the guy the advice that he needs. No matter where he got in his life, at the end of the day, he never forgot what God did for him. And that was the thing that when Nathan nailed him, it brought him back to God. Last week, we looked at Psalms 139 and John's funeral, verses 1 through 10. That's just one great example of God rec- David recognizing who he was and who God was and how that God knew him. God understood his thoughts afar off. God knew when he laid down. God knew when he got up. God knew everything about him, and yet he's absolutely amazed that God still wants anything to do with him. Oh, it's incredible stuff. Because of that, he was the one, the greatest king that Israel ever had. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, God himself said he was a man after his own heart. Sometime you have time, you want to pick up Arthur Pink's book on the life of David. Probably, without a doubt, the greatest book that was ever written on the life of David. Uh, Be dedicated to it. That sucker's probably four inches thick, and there is no pictures. And it's a thing where it's it's an incredible work. The Life of David by Arthur W. Pink. Along with that, of course, fresh in our minds, let's not forget what we had last week, the great example of John Gowans' last uh, service here, last Sunday, a celebration of what he gained by going home to be with the Lord. Not a time of rejoicing about what John did, but rather a celebration of what God did through him and what he gained when he went home to be with the Lord. Now, we all know our rejoicing goes back to God and what God's Son did uh, on Calvary's cross. That's where it all has to start. Not only does your prayer need to go back to the brazen altar, but everything that you do when you take the credit for it or you get the uh, glory of it needs to go back to that cross too. John's life was a textbook. I'm not saying he was perfect. I'm sure he had his issues just like we all do. But overcoming that, his life was a, is a textbook of a guy uh, giving God uh, his life and going uh, home to glory to back to God. And, of course, we know that Revelation 4, verse 10 says that, I know we all get rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We all get crowns and an inheritance. But it also says at some point we put those at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. You know why? Because it all goes back to him anyhow. Do you ever notice how, and I've observed this for many, many, many years, You ever notice how most funerals today are nothing more than a half-hearted preacher uh, spending 30, 40 minutes trying to convince you that the person was a great Christian uh, when they weren't? And uh, the funny thing is everybody sitting in the audience knows that he wasn't too. But that's the way it works today. You see, that's how it goes. Because a really good child of God, a really good Christian doesn't need that. Their life for God will be all that's needed. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, If any man love God, the same is known to him. You don't have to get up and, and dig for something to try to say about a person, especially when everybody is there. I, ha- I have made a decision in my life, and, you know, in the past, I, I've almost repented for this. In my past, I, I, you know, I've done a lot of funerals. I think I told you it was 198 last week, and uh, many of those funerals were probably looking back. And I know you get a chance to witness and all those things. But I'm not good. I'm just not very good at getting up and pretending somebody really loved the God when everybody in the audience knows that they didn't. I'm just not very good at that. I mean, I, I've had to do funerals where I've done them out of the 
out of the just out of doing it because I felt like I should have done it, and deep down inside I didn't want to do it. I, I see the people there that whose loved one dies, and this is not really with anybody here with you, but people on the outside who, you know, or people who are fringe people, you know, they have a brother die or commit suicide or he brother dies at, uh, you know, gets drunk in a car or a daughter gets killed in a car crash or something like that. They don't go to church. They don't do anything. And everybody expects you at the funeral to resurrect them as something great with God. And, and I'm, I'll be honest, I'm just not good at that. I'm just not good at it. I've told people here lately, you know, I've kind of done more funerals. I've had people call me. I had one just a couple of months ago. And I said, you know what? You really don't want me to do it. I'm not, I'm not going to be good at it. You know, the funeral home, for an extra $250, they'll have somebody on call that'll come in and they'll say whatever you want them to say. Just give them a list of everything that that person was and they'll get up there and make them like the Virgin Mary. But I can't do that. I'm just not. I just can't get up there and look at people in the face because you know why? I know they all know I'm lying to them. Some of them were the drinking buddies, and I'm going to say he loved God. Some of them were carousing together and running and doing all the things that they did, and I'm going to get up there and say what a great Christian he was. And you see, if you can't tell the truth, then if you did tell the truth, then everybody get mad at you. So I just step out of those things because a really good Christian doesn't need that. If most of you would die here today and I have to do your funeral, I wouldn't have to come up with a lot of things because everybody knows what you're already there because if any man love God, the same is known to him. And at the same token, if you don't love God, it's also known. And I look at the last part of that verse. But when the wicked rise, a man is hidden. Boy, this is a great principle here. You, you want to learn. If you're in the people ministry with me or you're just out there really want to learn how to deal, you want to you wanna get this one down. Now, doctrinally, I haven't said anything about this yet, but doctrinally, all of this stuff will be dealing with the Antichrist and, or the devil at the first coming and the second coming of Christ. At the first coming of Christ, men rejoiced. You see Matthew chapter 2 about the wise men, and they're coming from the east, and they're giving glory to God in the highest. But you see, also see that it was the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans, Herod in particular, that hid behind their Jewish religion but hated him and wanted him dead. At the second coming of Christ, the Jews will rejoice when they know uh, the Messiah has come. You'll see that in Revelation 7 and Revelation 14. But the world under the reign of the Antichrist will reject him and the hidden man. And, and that's a key word I want you to remember, the hidden man. The hidden man will always try to stop him. And we know that that finally ends in the Valley of Armageddon. Uh, he, he hides behind uh, his church. And we know that the tribulation in the first three and a half years, he comes back and he establishes peace. We talked about a little bit on Thursday night. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that. And then he, he's hidden. He hides behind his position. Brings a false peace to the world. But all the time he's a hidden man plotting against the nation of Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ. But staying with our own practical application here, just so you can put that note in your Bible, there's another really good principle here. Note the wicked rise and a man is hidden. I want you to know this, that no matter what wickedness rises up in your life, in, it's your job, uh, it, it, certainly in churches, 
no matter what religion, uh, what, what, no matter what happens, there'll always be a hidden man or a hidden woman behind it. I know it says man here, but it's talking in a biblical sense, but there'll be women too, but they'll be behind it. And you'll see this times in many pastors. You'll see it in many pastors' wives. You'll see it in deacons. You'll see it in Christians who are in a position of authority in any church. And you'll see how the wickedness of God's people can, can, can flow through that. You know, I made, a, I made the same mistake that most of God's people made when you first got saved, like I did when I first got right with God. I'll never forget that night. I had been out of fellowship for so many years, and, you know, they preached that night, and the choir sang the invitational, just as I am, without one plea, and boy, I would hit that thing, I went down there, and I got right with the Lord, and when I got up off my knees, if you'd have told me that there was wickedness in that church, and there were deacons that wasn't doing what's right, and there was Christians that weren't doing, I'd, I'd have fought you. I thought that every Christian at that point in that church or any church was just like the angels of God in heaven. Some 45 years later, 48 years later, I know that isn't true. Uh, But you don't know that back then. You know what? And God protects you from that. And it's a thing where you got to learn how to to grow into those things. And you'll find that uh, these guys, most pastors are uh, they're, they're, they're very, and I've, and I've known this for, for years. This is not something I'm just making up. I, I, I've watched this. I've been part of this for almost 50 years. Most pastors are so very insecure within their own selves. They just really are. They just don't have any self-worth or understand who they are in Christ. And I know a lot of God's people get that way too, but I'll tell you, as a God's child of God, I can get it, but you don't need to be in a pastor and be that way. So what they try to do is they try to, instead of admitting it and dealing with it, oh, no, couldn't do that. They try to portray themselves as something real spiritual to their people. And they'll, they'll, they'll get up and they'll say things like, well, you know what, if you people really knew how much I gave, to try to intimidate their people. They'll talk about, well, you know what, as a, as a, as a, as a pastor, I, I pray about everything. You know, I just, and, and everybody thinks that that's really spiritual. Now, in our set, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You tell me you pray about everything. I'll just confirm to me you don't know very much about the Bible. But you see, it's a ploy. It's because of their own insecurities. They've got to project to the people that they are really something spiritual and something special. They'll get up there and they'll whine and complain about, well, you just don't know how hard the ministry is. You just don't know what we, I go through as a pastor. And you just know, you just, you know, you need to pray for your pastor. You're, you know, you, you just don't know. What, well, let me tell you something. Once you get a job selling cars, whoever told you the ministry was going to be easy. And you go through the Bible and you find the guys that whine about it. Study who they really are and where, when they whine about it, where they're at with the Lord. And that's just the way that it is today. And it goes back to their own insecurity. You know, and it's a thing where, uh, and in doing so, they, they take the honor and glory that belongs to God and they try to wear it themselves by saying, look at me, how spiritual I am. Don't you want to be like me? And they hide, a man hidden is the verse. They hide behind their position as some spiritual leader, but they themselves are threatened by everything and everybody. And for them, it becomes all about control. 
I've seen pastors in my years that, that uh, uh, anybody that can preach better than they can, anybody that can teach better than they can, or anybody that can do things better than them, they had to go. Or they, they put such, they locked them away someplace that they would never allow them to grow and develop. Because it all has to be about them. And the moment you, you allow somebody to, you know, I've been in churches where I preached and uh, uh, the, the pastor was standing there and the guy come up and shook my hand and said, brother, that was just some great stuff. And then look at the pastor and say to him, how come you don't teach us stuff like that? No, that's, yeah, that, you're right, Meredith. That's exactly what I do. Cringe and you see the big neck muscles in my neck. It's just like that. If yours are nicer than mine. And it's a thing where it's, I, I'm thinking, oh boy, that's the last thing I need to be said. That's the last thing I needed, he needed to hear. And in a moment, it all changes. Now, before I was going to be an addition to his church, now I'm a threat to his church. And, uh, you, know, it's a, it, you know, in politics, they have what they call a bully pulpit. I don't know if you ever heard that term or not. A bully pulpit is a political term, and obviously it's what it is. A position where you have the pulpit, not necessarily a Bible pulpit like this one, but a pulpit in politics, and you have the only position, and you can bully people with it and make them do what, they want to, what you want them to do. And boy, that, that bully pulpit is not just designed for, for politics, I guarantee you. You know, anybody who can preach, teach, or do things better than them, they just have to go because it's all about them. And I'll be honest, over the years, I've picked up a lot of good people by pastors like that, and it, it works for me. They'll spend their whole lives in ministry uh, hurting good people so they themselves can, can look good. They'll never develop them. They'll never help them reach their full potential because actually their full potential in many ways are better than some of the potentials of the pastor himself. And so he's not going to allow that. They'll never allow anybody in their church that will, uh, you know, be on equal footing with them. They have to, they're like the Bible scholars. They know Greek and Hebrew, or they say they do. You don't. So they can always keep you at a disadvantage because you don't know it. And every time you try to exert any kind of spiritual whatever, they'll tell you, well, in the Hebrew or the Greek, that's not what it means. And they'll, they'll keep you at bay. Pastors do the same thing, not with the Greek and the Hebrew. They do it with their fake spirituality. They won't allow you. They'll control where you grow, how you grow, how you develop yourself. They'll put either people in your world to help you or they'll keep people out of your world to not help you. And that's, that's what they do. You had a guy here a while back that thought he found the perfect church. And this one wasn't perfect for him, and he thought he found the perfect church that was going to be everything he wanted. So he moved to that church, and, and uh, you know, and, uh, and now he was there. He got the great church uh, where, the, you know, he said, this is really where uh, God wants me to be. And uh, this guy is, is a great preacher, and, uh, you know, and this is where I need to be. And then sometime later, word comes back that, that he's just sitting in that church. They don't have any ministries. They're not going to allow him to do anything. When he comes up with an idea, no, we're not going to do that. So he's now stuck in a situation, in a place where he's going nowhere. I mean, and, you know, and, you know you, it's one of those things that a pastor should want his people to be better than he is. You know, and just let me say this. When you, if you ever look for a church someplace, don't look at the church. Don't look at the people. Go in and sit down with a pastor and simply say, hey, I'm thinking about coming to church here, but let me ask you a question. What is your plan for me if I come here that's going to help me develop to be used of God in every way that God wants me to be? Listen to what he says. If he says, well, just keep coming Sunday morning or Sunday night and tithing, be out of there. 
If he doesn't have a workable plan that is going to put in your world, putting people with you or him himself to get you where you want to go, a pastor should see the value of his people. He should see the value of the people that God gives him, and he should expect them, want them, to be very secure in the fact that they will do things better than he does. In fact, he should surround himself with that kind of men and women. He should be completely secure in himself and realize that together we all make up the body of Christ. My arm doesn't stop working because my leg gets to do more than my arm does. My ear doesn't stop hearing. Well, I can't use that one. But <laughs> my ear doesn't stop hearing because my hands get to do things and the ears just stay static. It's part of the body. And obviously different parts of our body, our hands, our feet, our ears, our nose, our eyes, our head, they do different functions, but the body itself never revolts and says, oh, I'm not going to be part of that because I didn't get to do that. It's a body. It's like a family. It's like a marriage. We all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. I would never stand up here and tell you that I, I have all the strength. Are you kidding me? First of all, you know I was lying to you. And I wouldn't believe it for a moment when you want to pretend that you got it all together, that you've learned all the things now of the Bible. No, no, you haven't. No, it works like this. I have strengths. You have weaknesses. I have weaknesses and you have strengths. And God has put us together in the body for your strengths to override my weaknesses and my strengths to override yours. And together, we work together. And in time, I expect you to be better than me. I expect you to be smarter than me. I've had to struggle for everything I've learned about the Bible. It didn't come to me easy. But my goal is to give it to you easier than I had to get it. Why? Because I want you to be better. Why? Because you're smarter. You're younger. You're more vibrant. I'm on this side of life. You're on that side of life. I'm going out of mine. You're coming into yours. You have to come to the place as a pastor where you want to give your people everything that God has given you and make them ultimately better than you are. Now, that isn't going to happen with everybody because some of you are going to be no-dos the rest of your life. I get that. But if just five of you, if just four of you, if just a couple of you get it, it'll be worth it all. And a pastor should be completely secure in himself and realize that together we all make up this body, using together everything uh, we have each other's gifts. Getting, uh, you know, getting insecure and, and threatened by that is absolutely ridiculous. And you know what? The end result of that is so many people get hurt in churches. So many people get bitter and never go back to churches because they got a raw deal. Hey, I get it. I've dealt with it all my life and seen it. And the Bible says that when a wicked rise, a man is hidden. There'll always be somebody behind it. If it isn't a pastor, then it'll be a deacon. If it isn't a deacon, it'll be somebody in authority. It'll be a Sunday school teacher. Or it'll be somebody that's been in a church for 150 years that are worthless. Now, having said that, I want to address a point here. Having said that, don't think for a moment. And last Sunday was, was, was historic. 
I mean, never in my ministry have I've done that before. Nobody's ever asked me. Uh, but uh, certainly his request was worthy of his life, as we all saw. We all know we love John. But I want to tell you, don't think for a moment that everybody was happy with John's last request to have his service on Sunday morning uh, in church that he loved and, and wanted a preaching service. Don't kid yourself. I mean, God's people are incredible sometimes. And, 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 and we no more than told our church that John wanted it uh, the way he wanted it and wanted it on a Sunday morning than, uh, you know, three or four people over the course of the week had come to me uh, and, and, uh, and said that people, not here, but people uh, were saying, well, you know, Bob's just doing that because he wants to have a crowd on Sunday morning. Are you kidding me? You see, to them it means nothing as to what John wanted. We got a phrase we like to use when we don't want, we say, over my dead body, you're going to do that. You know what John said? He said, I want you to preach the truth and I want you to give them the word of God because there's people there that I want to reach and I want you to do it over my dead body. They'll never get it. He wanted the message at his expense. He was willing to go home. He was excited and happy to go home. As sad as he was to leave everything here, he knew that he was gaining some things. And all he asked me to do was to take that Sunday morning and tell people that he wanted in a church where he loved, in a service that he loved, by preaching that he loved, what he gained. But oh, no, 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 no. It's all about you. And the Bible says when the wicked rise, a man is hidden. Yeah, they are. They're hidden behind their pulpit. They're hidden behind their little gossip sessions. They're hidden behind the little closed doors with their friends. They're hidden behind uh, their little slander uh, circle. Uh, Yes, when the wicked rise up, it's always a man hidden. And as I said before, you want to know this, that in every slander, in every gossip, in every talebearer, I mean, you know, you would think people are really stupid. You know, the the Facebook deal, people put stuff on Facebook like nobody's going to see it. Did you ever notice that? They'll put some of the stupidest stuff on there and think that, you know, I mean, I don't know what they think. I mean, you realize that you can't go anywhere in America without being on a camera someplace. And I'm telling you, you put something on Facebook, not only does everybody have the ability to see it, but it's there forever. I've seen them up there, you know, posting some of the stupidest stuff you ever saw in your life. I've seen them saying some of the dumbest stuff you ever saw in your life. I, I don't do Facebook. You people all send it to me. No, I, Facebook is not for me. And I'll tell you right now, if you spend as much time in your Facebook as you did in your Facebook, you'll be a lot better off. You don't have to pay me for that. I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> but churches are the same way. You know, there's a, in any church, I don't care what it is, in any church, you, you need to really be careful who you say something to because in every church there is an underground pipeline. In World War II in the Pacific Theater, it was called the Bamboo Pipeline. Uh, you know, it, it always comes back. And it's a thing where people get out there and they say stuff, well, don't tell anybody. Well, the moment you got off done with them, they just told 10 more people. The pipeline is one of the greatest things, I think. But it's a two-way street. You always say things, but then it always comes back. 
I mean, you could go out there, you know, you're out with a friend at work someplace, you know, and you're, you're eating lunch and you're mouthing off about this or about that or, you know, down in, if you work downtown or wherever you work or whatever you're doing, you know, and, you know, you think, well, I just told him and then we'll go. Hey, before that food digests, five other people will know about it. That's the pipeline. And it's a thing where it's, people are so stupid. You know what the best thing to do? If you got something you want to say to somebody, say it to the person you need to say it to. I mean, these people should have called me up and said, well, you know what, Bob, why are you doing this the way you're doing it? Do you just want a crowd? No, no, they're not going to do that. They're just not. Now, let me be clear. And I'm speaking now to these whited sepulchers out there, but let me be clear. Uh, and, you know, and uh, uh, we didn't have John's funeral where and when we had it, uh, so we could get a crowd. Let me be clear. Unlike you, little man, we get a crowd every Sunday. So we'll start with that. Not done yet. No, we, we, we did it at the request of a man who you could never understand, more or less be like, to give a celebration of what he gained and going home uh, to be with the Lord. And to give the honor and glory to God for what God did in his life as righteous men do, Proverbs 28, 12. And the people that he wanted to reach through his gain. And he specifically asked me and wanted a time and a preaching service where he knew there would be people that would come. And that we could learn about what his transition from this life to the other life was. And uh, it's an incredible thing. I mean, your stupidity is only eclipsed by your wickedness. And all you can see is what you want to see. And you're, you're afraid, oh, that they're just having a church service there because Bob wants a crowd. Oh, come here, break. I mean, what planet do you live on? But I got to be honest with you. I must. If there's any other personal reason, and I'll confess this after church, if there's maybe this afternoon, I want to enjoy it for a little bit. If there's any other reason I was glad that we did it when we did it, not only to honor John's request, but I must be honest, if there's any other reason I was glad that we did it the way we did it, it was so that I knew that you couldn't come. Because I don't want your unclean spirit messing up the life of a man who dedicated his life to God. I'm done. No, I'm not. (laughs) When the wicked rise, there'll be a man hidden. Or his wife. When a wicked ride, and I, I'm telling you, I, I'm telling you, I hope you, I, I, I hope somebody goes back and says, you need to listen to what he said. 816-590-6315. When the wicked arise, they will, they will, like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they will, they'll always be behind the fake spirituality that they project. The scribes and the Pharisees, they did it. They couldn't see anything that God was doing, just like so many of God's people today. All they saw was their own personal agenda. And the fact that the Son of God, the incarnate Word of God, the Messiah to their nation, had showed up to bring the salvation of God and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven to them, never entered into it. Look at verse 13. What great advice for all of us. He that covereth his sin... (laughs) A good one to follow up on. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Now, this is a tremendous truth. 
At the time of salvation, uh, you got saved from your sins as a sinner that was lost without hope. And of course, we've taught the great teaching uh, here, the sinner, son, and servant. So you know how that works. We've also laid out the great doctrine of standing and state. So you know how that works. After salvation, uh, you and I need a daily cleansing from the flesh to keep uh, or to restore our fellowship when we lose it. Last week, I showed you in the tabernacle concept, the labor of water, how that the priest went into the tabernacle to do the work of the ministry. There was no floor in it, and his feet kept getting dirty. Picture you and me working the ministry in the world and getting a dirty. So every time he came out, he had to wash his feet. Every time he goes in, he has to wash his feet. So picture you and I getting clean with the Word of God before we go in and do the work of the ministry. You'll find this great principle in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the uh, fear of God. Now you notice it says perfect, uh, uh, cleansing ourselves uh, from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, but you realize it doesn't say the word soul here. It only deals with your flesh and deals with your spirit. Now, there's a reason for that. And uh, most pastors couldn't figure it out. Most Christians couldn't figure it out. But two books in your Bible will illustrate this great teaching, doctrine. The first will be the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, you know, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each Gospel portrays Christ in a different format. And the Gospel of John portrays Him as the Son of God. This is why we have in John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Matthew, he has a genealogy that runs him through the kingly line back to David. In Mark, uh, he doesn't have a genealogy because he's a servant. And in Luke, he goes back through the uh, human line through Mary. Uh, and in John, his, his human line or his line goes back to God as the Word of God and as God. And, uh, you know, it, most people don't understand how these books work. In every book of the Bible, there'll either be a verse that defines that book or there'll be a chapter that defines it. And obviously, one of the things that you want to do in some time in your life is to put it all together is to find and get those verses marked and understand that the whole book goes around either that chapter and in many cases in that verse. And the Gospel of John is no different. The definitive verses for the Gospel of John is found in John chapter 20, verse 31. It tells you why John was written in the first place. And it says in that verse, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, the Gospel of John, you're clearly told there, was written so you could find Christ as a Son of God and that you might believe, you might get saved. You know, when, when people print Bibles, sometimes they don't print whole Bibles, sometimes they don't print New Testaments. Sometimes all they print are two books. And they pass those out because those are the two books that will show a man how to get saved. You want to guess what they are? John's and Romans. Because John was written to show you the Son of God that you might believe. Roman was to show you the pathway how to get there. Romans chapter 10. And of course, that's so true. <clears throat> There's a great debate today. You know, I get, I get emails from it all week. Um, uh, not all week, but a couple of months that uh, the great debate today uh, by the hyper-dispensationists, the hyper-Calvinists who, who want to debate the fact that can you uh, get saved by the words of Jesus? 
And of course, I don't ever mess with these idiots. I mean, it's a thing where, you know, it ain't worth the time to deal with it. But the great thing is now, now, can you, because they believe that the only thing that you can really trust in the New Testament are the writings of Paul after a certain point. They reject the Gospels, they reject everything else, and they just take three or four or five books that Paul writes, and the rest of it they, they just say, that's not to you. And so there's a great debate today. Can you really get saved with, by just the words of Jesus? Obviously, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of course, I don't debate them on it, but if I ever did, I'd knock you out in the first 20 seconds with one verse. It's all you need to destroy you. But you don't know anything about the Bible, so therefore you play your little game with the little guys that you play it with, and uh, you go back and forth with it. But at the end of the day, um, you've got two books that define it for you. First, the Gospel of John defines you as the Son of God and how you get saved. Then the second book you have is the, God, is the book of 1 John, the epistle. Now, where the key to the Gospel of John will be salvation or believing, the key to 1 John will be fellowship and knowing who he is after your salvation. And if you miss these two books, this is why you're in the mess that you're in. And in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, it simply says this, That which was from the beginning, that what we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and with our looked upon with our hands and handled the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father uh, and with his Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I don't know if you can right off the top of your head, see the correlation between the Gospel of John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 1. Gospel of John says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here it says, That which was from the beginning, just like John, Gospel of John, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon with our ears, have handled the Word of life. That's talking about Christ. Clearly showing you again that Christ was the incarnate of the Word of God. And there's a great similarity there. It, 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 God was manifested in the flesh, and we see that the Word is a reference to Christ. And then he says in verse 5, this is the message. Now, there's a message in 1 John, just like there was a message in the Gospel of John. The message in the Gospel of John was to show you that he is the Christ, and if you believe on him, you can get saved. The message here is different than verse 5. Then this is the message which we have heard of him and declare we unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Then the gospel of John is about salvation. First John is about fellowship. And the message of one is the fact that you need to get saved. And the message of first John is that once you get saved, this is how you stay in fellowship. It's just that simple. But if we walk in the light as he in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son cleanses us from all sin. That's not salvation. That's written to a man that's already saved who has believed the gospel of John. But 1 John is the book that shows you how to stay in fellowship after you get saved. Verse 4 says, And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. You can be saved and not be full of God's joy. Do you know that? 
because salvation doesn't just give you the completeness of joy. It gives you the ability to have the joy. But after you're saved, joy only comes through your fellowship, walking in the light as he is in the light, having fellowship one with another. So we see it very clearly. Verse 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. You see, one book is about believing, that's salvation, John. The other book is about knowing him, and that's fellowship after you've been saved. That's why in five little chapters of the book of 1 John, you got the word knowing 27 times. And yet the Bible scholars will tell you, 99.99% of the pastors will tell you that the theme of 1 John is love. And of course, anytime I would read a book in five chapters that you got 27 times about knowing, I would know the theme of that book is what? Knowing. It's just that simple. And then, you know, you, you, it was written by the greatest, both books were written by the greatest man in the Bible who is both types uh, I mean, he's a type of the church, and he's a type of the New Testament Christian, John. I mean, uh, Solomon writes five wisdom books in the Old Testament. John writes five wisdom books in the New Testament. It's incredible stuff. I don't know why, I don't know why somebody can't get it. It's not complicated. Uh, watch this. Here's a good one for you. In one place in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, it says that if we're born of God, we never sin. And another place it says in John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we lie and do not the truth. One place says in the same book that we don't sin, the other one says we do sin. And there isn't 10 pastors in this city, maybe five, that could explain that to you and understand why that's not a contradiction and the great doctrines that lay it out on both sides. And not only that, in the book of 1 John that deals with our relationship and our fellowship will be found the greatest verse on eternal security anywhere in the Bible. 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, 12, and 13. And this is the record. God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have been written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that you have eternal life. Gospel of John tells you how to get saved by believing on Christ and how he'll change your life. The book of 1 John tells you after you're saved, how do you maintain that fellowship? And you know what it also tells you? It tells you you got a record. You got a record of your salvation. Now, you got a record of everything in life. I don't know if you know that or not. You got a birth certificate. Try to go to school someplace or try to do something meaningful in life without showing them your birth certificate. And the very fact that you're standing there as proof of you were born won't cut it. <laughs> they want to see a worthless piece of paper that says on such and such a day, you came into this world. And it's the same thing with your salvation. You carry a Bible around, but that don't make it say, make you saved. You have to have a record of your salvation. If you have a home, you bought a home, you're going to get a deed to that home. That home is your record. that It's yours. When a cop pulls you over, he wants to see your license and registration. That is the record that that car is yours. You'll go to your doctor and he'll say, well, we're going to get your medical records. I mean, everything you do, you go to Starbucks to get a cup of coffee. They give you a receipt. That's a record of your Lapadina, Mina, Galena, Bilina. Real Christians drink coffee black. All this fancy stuff is for neo-evangelicals. Cold iced coffee is for unsaved people. Who can't stand the heat. 
And the verse says that he that covereth his sins shall not prosper. And boy, what a true statement that is. But whosoever confesseth and forsaken them shall have mercy. Now, I want you to notice that there are two aspects to this. Getting and staying right with God and in, in, in restoring or keeping your fellowship. The first one is everybody screws up during the day. And that's why 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 was given. If you're faithful and just to confess your sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Most Christians make a terrible mistake because they don't understand the teaching. They'll get up in the morning, and you've got the best intentions to serve in God. You really do. So you're off to work, you know, and you're coming down the freeway on your way to work, and, you know, you're singing, you've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart, and you really do. And about that time, somebody pulls out in front of you and cuts you off, and you forget the joy, 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 and now it's... <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank you for cutting me off. <laughs> and you go to work, you know, and you, uh, you have a little oopsie-daisy there, and you go to work, and then, you know, your people there start giving you tough times, or your boss, or things happen. You know how it goes. And you just struggle through the day. And you, uh, you go home that night, and you, you know, you... you get ready to go to bed and you say, Lord, I, I had a really tough day today and I just want you to forgive me. I really fell down a lot of today. And I, it started with that, that, uh, that person that uh, cut me off on the freeway. And, you know, I'm sorry about that. I did not see it was my mother. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, you know, I just, I really want you to, you know, and you know what you've done? You've wasted the whole day out of fellowship with him. That person pulls out in front of you and you lose control. And we all do. I mean, that's why God put horns on your cars, man. <laughs> and you, you know, you lose it right there in the spot. You simply say, Lord, that wasn't right. I'm sorry. Forgive me. You go to work and something happens and right on the spot, you say, God, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have thought that. I don't care if you go through the day and you have a hundred times you fall. If you confess it a hundred times, you know what the difference is between the two? On the one, you've wasted fellowship all day long. On the other one, you confess it all day long and you end in fellowship with him. That's the key. That's what called God consciousness. Not taught very much today. God consciousness. And you know, it's a thing where, and this is a great principle, but we all know this is true. Everybody will confess their sins just trying to get you to forsake them. That's the problem. You know, the finding fellowship is another there, you know, and I know there's just different kinds of fellowship. There's the hanging out together, you know, uh, you know what we all do together. We all do. We love it. You know, we eat out together. We get together. We have barbecues. We have this. We have that. We hang out at birthday parties. We hang out at Jamie's. We hang out here. We have our, it, it's all. It's all good. And that is us fellowshipping together. But I think sometimes that we don't see the difference between us fellowshipping around the Lord and you personally fellowshipping with the Lord. I mean, you can't fellowship with God at Jason's Deli or Jack Stack in the sense that we do. But real fellowship with Christ is simply walking in the light as he is in the light, staying in a book together. The time that you set aside, not just reading your Bible or studying your Bible, but thinking about your Bible. You know, thinking about something in the Bible that God gave you or remembering or keeping your verses close to you that mean so much to you, having fellowship one with another. And he says in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, these things, the things in 1 John, these things, he doesn't write unto you to be saved. 
That's the gospel of John. These things he writes unto you that your joy may be full. And I'm going to tell you right now, there will be no joy in your life with Christ without fellowship in your life with Christ, with the Word of God. Again, the seven things you lose when you lose your Bible. Now we know that you have no Bible. It's impossible to have fellowship. You can't walk in the light because the Bible says that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all and there's no question about from the simplicity of it all that, um, that the other Bibles are darkness. And now we know what you're up against. We live in a, we live in a Christian world that works 24-7 at taking the simple things of God and making them complex and hard to understand for you. I mean, come on. How, much, how, how easy is God's simple plan of salvation? I mean, really. I mean, just take the book of Romans. Romans 3, Romans 6, and Romans 10. It's all you need, really. Romans 3 tells you all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. There's your pivotal verse. And then Romans chapter 10 tells you whosoever shall call, tells you how to call, tells you the two aspects it takes for you to get saved, and then you call. How much simpler can it be than that? But, oh, we like to make it so simple. We got books out there that just bring you through all these things. Oh, you'll never really understand salvation until you read my book. You'll never really understand salvation until you hear my sermons and my, my cassettes. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? How about baptism? I mean, how simple could it get? Everybody in the book of Acts, when they got saved, you know what they did? They got baptized. They didn't sit around saying, well, I need to pray about whether I get baptized or not. Or they didn't care about how cold the water was. Or they didn't say, well, I'm not quite ready yet. I'm, I, here, here, my, personally, if you're not ready to get baptized after you're saved, I think you probably weren't ready to get saved when you got saved. That's just me. But, oh, we make it so complicated. I mean, we just make it so complicated. Baptism now gets tied into everything. It's all through there. How about the Bible itself? Your King James Bible is written in third, fourth grade language. 98% of it is one-syllable words. The greatest verse in the Bible getting saved is, He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. All one-syllable words. What does man do with that? Well, you've got to know the Greek and you've got to know the Hebrew. You've got to spend 40 years of your life uh, learning two languages that nobody on earth ever spoke anymore. And that's where God read it, wrote it because God wrote it so that only a few people could get it like us. So when we get it, that we are the great minds and we can tell everybody else what it is. Yeah, right, right. Well, God gave you a book. The only real truth that you can get from it is spending 30, 40 years learning two dead languages. And then uh, if you don't get it done in time of the rapture, God's going to judge you by a book that he gave you that he knew you couldn't understand to begin with. See how simple it is? How simple it is. It's everything. It's, it's fellowship. It's, you know, the forgiveness of God. It's, uh, it's prayer. It's, it's everything in the Bible. Everything. We just try to make it as complicated as we can when the Bible is so simple. And when a man or woman does that, they, they do it for one reason. Make things complicated. They do it for one reason. It says, look at me. Look how smart I am. Look what I've got that you have to come to me to get. And, and that's why I just, I, I, I have a tough time with people going to churches where if you've got problems, you go to a counselor and you've got to pay for it. If you want this, you've got to pay for it. If you go to take a class, they're going to pay you, you're going to cost for the materials, all this stuff. Really? I mean, how do you put a price tag on, on, on God's teaching and God's word when you got it for nothing? And you say, well, I went to Bible college and paid for it. You need to get your money back because you got cheated, man. You didn't need to do that. You did that because somebody told you that's what you need to do. Show me one verse in that Bible that says higher education will do anything for you. Jesus said, on the other hand, very simple, 
except you come to me as a little child, you have no part of me. Now, most of you got child, most of you got little kids, not most of you, some of you. Some of you got kids that are, you know, in your babies or young kids or like three or four, eight or nine or ten. Any of your kids got PhDs? Any of them got their bachelor's degree? Any of them got their degrees and been to college already? No. No, no, that comes later in life when, uh, but at this point, they just have a childlike faith that you'll believe whatever you tell them to believe. That's what God wants us to be. He doesn't want us to stand there and say, well, God, I just don't know about that. You know, uh, he wants us to say, God, I don't understand that. That just shows me how stupid I am and how smart you are. So please show me what you want me to see. There's the difference. And he said, but I fear as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtleties. So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And you know, Eve is a type, first type of the church in the Bible. And the devil coming to her to corrupt the simplicity. You know how he corrupted it? She said, well, this is what God told me to do. And then the devil said, you know what? In the original, that's not what it means. I'm here to help you revive what God told you and threw the whole world into sin. We just stay with the simple things. We don't, need, we don't need a lot of outside help. We certainly don't need psychology. We certainly don't need all the things that, that the world wants to put into Christianity, or I should say Christianity wants to bring in from the world. Now, you just remember one simple great truth. Now, wherever there is strife, wherever there is gossip, wherever there is backbiting, wherever there is sowing discord, wherever there is controversy over the Word of God, wherever there is somebody trying to take the simple things of God and make them complicated, there will always be a man or a woman hidden. Because the wickedness arises when somebody is behind it. I think he said, a man and Satan standing at his right hand Psalms 109, and that's what you're going to find. You find them, and you'll find where the problem is. In your church, in Christianity, in the body of Christ, anywhere in the world's situation around us. It's called showing discord because discord in music, music is by chords, and chords form harmony. And harmony forms nice music. The last thing you want in a quartet or in any group is somebody, 90% of the band playing in harmony and 10% playing in disharmony. You know in a moment it ain't right. And in the Christian world, in the Christian life, you see it just quickly. We are to have a unity. We're to have a harmony. And it only takes a wicked man hidden to try to disrupt that harmony. And that's what the book of Proverbs is all about. It's about that we are the body of Christ. We have replaced the very body of the Lord Jesus Christ when he went back to heaven. And the body wasn't enough because we needed to know what he wanted us to do. And the only way we could do that was to have his mind. So he gave us his mind in the form of a volume of a book. And now we have the body, we have the mind, and now we finish and complete what God started through his son that he wants us to start. And what the devil and the wicked want to do is sow the disharmony to stop it. We'll hold up there and uh, let's have a word of prayer.